Well, with his wife, Jane McCarthy, James Bulger Sr. moved and settled in the community of Everett, Massachusetts. He worked there as a union laborer and a dock worker, and he worked there through that tough New England climate. All of his work came to a halt when, tragically, he lost his left arm in an accident. So with poverty closing in, he moved his wife and his three sons to a housing project in South Boston. Undeterred by that position, one son would excel in school. William Bulger rose to become a politician, a lawyer, an educator. He holds the record to this day for the longest-serving president of the Massachusetts State Senate. And he occupied that prestigious position of University of Massachusetts president. Another brother, James Bulger Jr., sunk to a life of crime. In 1999, he sat second on the FBI's most wanted fugitive list to Osama bin Laden, known as Whitey Bulger for his blonde hair. The organized crime boss was wanted for 32 counts of racketeering, money laundering, extortion, and weapons charges, not to mention 19 counts of murder. After 16 years on the run, he went to prison where he died in the way he lived. From one father came two very different people. And in our text this morning, from one Lord come two very different men. We'll meet a man named Simon Peter. You know him. Impulsive, loud, at times presumptuous. He's a man of highs and a man of lows, all seemingly in the same breath. Peter would rise to become the leader of the early church. We'll meet a man named Judas Iscariot. You know him as well. He's the money man, a disciple, an apostle, His name will forever be synonymous with the word traitor. He's a man who committed a crime worse than the sum total of a lifetime of corruption. You see, Judas and Peter both had sin. But the question is not, do we sin? But what do we do when we sin? Judas and Peter each answer that question differently. And from them, we learn two responses to our sin against God. Our message comes from the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to chapter 26. We're nearing the end of that chapter. We begin in verse 69. If you're joining us this morning, we go verse by verse, generally through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings. We follow the greatest story ever told, the life of Jesus the Christ, as Matthew's recorded it. And today we'll contrast this man named Judas and this man named Peter. There are two responses to sin. Let me begin in verse 69 and read through verse 75. It's the response of Peter, and his was one of repentance. Peter respond in repentance. Matthew chapter 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard... And a servant girl came to him and said, You too are with Jesus the Galilean. 
But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Well, this here is the account of Peter's denials. Peter denies Jesus. And this really is is a vivid contrast of two different testings or two different trials. You see, in, in one trial, you have the Lord on trial, and in another here, it's Peter. Our Lord is on trial for his life. Peter's on trial for his faith. Our Lord is standing before the Sanhedrin, that is the, 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 the governing body of Jewish religious leaders, this powerful body. Peter stands before servant girls and some bystanders. Our Lord is going to pass his test and go to the cross. Peter will fail his and flee the courtyard. And what makes this so aggravating is that Peter was so sure that he would never do this. Only hours ago, Jesus predicted his betrayal. Back in verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What does Peter say? Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Well, a large group came and arrested Jesus. They brought him by torchlight to the home of a man named Caiaphas. He's the high priest or the leaders of this Jewish governing body. We call it a sham trial. Um, They pretty much knew the verdict even before the trial began. They knew what they wanted to do with Jesus. They just needed to have that formal stamp. Over in John's gospel, John tells us how Peter got near to this whole trial. Simon Peter was following Jesus, John writes, and so was another disciple. That's John. He writes of himself. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, being John, who was known to the high priest, went in and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. We might say John was a guy who knew a guy. So here it is, late March, early April. It's possibly a cool night, a crisp night. We know that Peter had other reasons to pull up his collar and pull down his hat. I mean, if they're treating the master Jesus in a certain way, how much more the disciple? And he takes a seat by a fire in the courtyard. Now, large homes of the time were formed around a central courtyard area. Back, all the way back in chapter 
26, verse 3, we saw the word for Caiaphas' home. It's translated as palace, just to give you an idea of the size of this guy's house. And it makes sense. He's high priest. He'd enjoy many luxuries, chief among which would be a nice home. It was big enough to host a courtroom full of people. After all, that's what they're up to. There's a centralized courtyard. It's two stories high. Mark's gospel places Peter below in the courtyard, meaning this trial took place somewhere upstairs. Now, I imagine Peter sought news, any kind of news he could get from what's happening inside. And I imagine at the same time, in the same way, he wants to conceal his identity as much as possible. A servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. Now, the Gospel of John, John records her as the girl who watches the door. I imagine she was knowing who's who and who ought to be there and who's not and who's out of place. She spotted Peter. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. Now, this calls for a change in location. Obviously not going to continue to stand by this girl. The text says that he retreats to the gateway. There's another servant girl. She spots him, and there's nothing subtle about this. She said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Are you kidding me? Don't these servant girls have anything better to do? And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. That, by the way, probably means he's invoking the name of God where he's saying something along the lines of, like, I swear by the God of heaven, I, I, I don't know who Jesus is. And not only now was he never with Jesus, as he indicated to the first servant girl, but now he's saying that he never even knew him. Peter tries a different tactic. He's going to make some chit-chat with the locals. Better to try to blend in than just hide out. That's not working. Verse 73, a little later, the bystanders came up, Luke's gospel records it's about an hour later, and said to Peter, surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. It's the Galilean accent. You can pick it up. It's like a southern accent if you meet someone in the streets of Bellingham. And in the strongest terms, Peter again denies it. He began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. These aren't vulgarities, but again, it's that swearing of an oath. It's a calling or invoking of the name of God, trying to confirm or or convince that there's no way I know Jesus. But then, what did he hear? A rooster crowed. Immediately, he knew he failed. I bet Peter never heard a rooster crow the same way again. And sorrow filled his heart. And his soul is drowning in anguish. And as his eyes are welling up with tears, he sees through them Jesus gazing at him. Luke chapter 22 tells us the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, I don't know if he's looking through a second floor window or if he's moving out of this palace into the next phase of the trial. But boy, what a moment that must have been. 
Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Do you think he remembered his words, his promise? Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Do you think he thought back to the words of Jesus? Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father. I mean, this is a a, a plunge to a new depth for Peter. And Peter understood the bottom. And when you and I are at our lowest, when we reside at the bottom, when we are devastated, what's left? What is there? It's the grace of God. Because where there is repentance, there is reconciliation, and there's a renewal of a relationship with God. And I want you to know this morning, believer, that wherever you are in your walk with God, there is forgiveness for you. There is grace in your sin. Whatever that sin may be, whatever the depth, there is no sin that God cannot forgive. There is no sin that God will not forgive when we come to him repenting. And we see this in the life of Peter. It's going to play out over the remainder of his life. How so? I want to show you a few ways this does. We see it first in the words of Jesus. And this is a little bit of a rewind. This has already been hinted at in Luke's gospel that, that Peter would, in fact, bounce back and come back from this. Earlier that night, Jesus spoke to Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail in you. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus spoke that only a few hours prior. And again, the context for that, that's a statement out of Luke. The context for that is Peter's affirmation. Lord, I'm not going to deny you. And Jesus spoke this to him in that moment. And this prayer that Jesus prayed, it came about. Secondly, we know that Peter remained with the disciples. Now, we don't exactly know where he went when he departed on this lonely night. He left weeping, but we do know where he was on the resurrection morning. He was with the disciples. Somewhere between early that Friday morning and early Sunday morning, he again linked up with John and the other disciples. In John chapter 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene She's stunned to find the tomb of Jesus empty. This enormous stone is rolled away, and she ran and tells Peter and John. And if his presence with John is any indicator of his heart, just consider his response to Mary's news. Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I mean, Peter couldn't get to that tomb fast enough. Jesus, fourthly, is going to restore Peter. And he's going to do it in a way that's similar to his fall. In an appearance following his resurrection, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, Peter went by the name Simon as well. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, tend my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. 
And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus tells him, tend my sheep. You see, three times Peter denied Jesus, and three times Jesus affirmed his love. Jesus pressed him, notice that, on that third point. It was even to the point of grief. And I think there's something intentional about that. There's something intentional about that stretch that we have at times, where God stretches us and makes us ready and pliable for use in the potter's hands. True repentance, after all, makes one useful clay in the hands of the master, and how abundantly fruitful Peter would be. So there's a fifth evidence of his repentance as we look at the birth of the early church. You can begin in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. All the way through mid-Acts, Jesus is going to use Peter as the key leader in the early church. That's right, the Peter of today's account. There's this brand new organism coming on the scene called the church. And Jesus is going to use a man like Peter to build it. And the book of Acts is going to go on to record the ministry of Peter. He's going to preach sermon after sermon. He's going to evangelize and share the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was Peter preaching when the Holy Spirit came. He healed a lame beggar, a bedridden paralytic. He brought back a woman from the dead. Peter experienced arrests and floggings and escapes. Repentance is proved in her deeds. Peter would go on to write, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, an early witness to the church, writes that Mark's gospel is the account of Peter. God used Peter in amazing ways. And that's what we see in this life of Peter. The Lord reveals that he can use anyone. He can use anyone in big ways to advance his kingdom. Grievous sinners who repent, God can reap a harvest for Christ through them. No one stands outside of God's grace. No sin is unforgivable. And that grace is available to all who come to him, confessing sin and repenting. Not all stories have a happy ending. To contrast the response of Peter, one of repentance, there's a response of Judas, and this is one of remorse. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 10, it's the response of Judas, a response of remorse. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned to the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them in the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money, bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. 
For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. You see that Judas followed a very different path than Peter. Those first two verses, the religious elite, they agree to put Jesus to death. Only that's outside of their scope of power. Remember, Palestine's occupied by Rome at the time, and Rome reserved the right, the exclusive right, to the capital punishment and the death penalty. So the Jews need to get Rome in on this. They send him over to Pilate, the governor, who can, in fact, allow execution. But before we get to that, that comes later in Matthew 27, Matthew records the fate of Judas first. In verse 3, when Judas saw that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse. Now, evidently, he had not calculated the effect of his betrayal. Now, I'm not sure what he thought would happen. Perhaps he thought that he personally would be unaffected, maybe emotionally detached from the event that could take place. Maybe he believed that Jesus, seeing his power, might lead some kind of uprising or fabricate an escape. Maybe he thought Jesus wouldn't receive so harsh a sentence. I mean, after all, the death penalty is pretty severe. Whatever he thought he would get, that bag of money hung around his heart like a battleship anchor. And he had to get rid of it. And to do it, he took it and threw it in the temple sanctuary. But notice he stopped off somewhere first. He tried to return it. He tried to give it back to these elders and chief priests, these religious leaders. And they proved to be consistently useless. They upheld the unfortunate tradition of unfaithful ministry to the Israelites. All the way back, through Ezekiel, God spoke. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. Even into the days of Jesus, they are of no help. They are of no help to Judas, who comes back to them seeking help. They're unpastoral. They're almost defiant in their answer. Did you read what they said? What is that to us? See to that yourself. These 30 pieces of silver, they stained the floor of the sanctuary. And that left them with a predicament. Apparently, the norm was to just donate this money back into the treasury. But this had become blood money. This had become money used to put a man to death. And the religious leaders, they don't want to put this dirty money back into the temple treasury. 
But there's an irony here, isn't there? Because they had no problem doling it out for this purpose. This money was dirty from the start. In fact, it was their idea to use the temple money to pay Judas. So they confer together and use the money to buy the potter's field. It's a burial place for strangers. A tradition locates this field in the Valley of Hinnom. And this is just outside the walls of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, child sacrifices took place there under pagan religions. And by the time of Jesus, a garbage dump perpetually burned there. The Lord called this place Gehenna. And he used it as an illustration of hell. To make a field a cemetery in this place? That's not too far of a stretch. But we're interested in the fate of Judas. And verse 5 states very succinctly, he went away and hanged himself. Now Acts chapter 1 gets more specific. Luke, the author of Acts, writes of the horrors of his death. In fact, in this account, it's Peter, the man of repentance, who speaks of Judas, this man of remorse. Now Judas acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their their own language the field was called a keldama, that is, field of blood. Now, Matthew 27, our account this morning, in Acts chapter 1, these two accounts don't contradict each other, but rather they complement one another. His acquisition of that field had happened through the chief priests. They used the money that Judas gave back to purchase that field. And we know that Judas died by hanging. He died by suicide. In fact, in the passage in Acts I just read, it assumes this. It says that he fell headlong. It did not say that he died by falling, but simply it states his fall. Different theories have been put forth for this fall. Perhaps the tree branch broke or the rope broke, something to that effect. There's different theories on exactly why his end worked out the way it did. Some postulate the heat of the sun and the bacterial breakdown would cause his body to rupture after bloating. From time to time, I'm asked if people who commit suicide go to hell when they die. Suicide is is awful. Suicide is murder. Suicide is sin, and it is a breaking of God's law. But all who repent and believe upon Jesus go to heaven when they die. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All who do not repent, all who do not believe, will not go to heaven when they die. They will go to hell because their sins are not forgiven. Now, it's true with the issue of suicide that a a person can make a poor decision. A person can make a poor decision and a person can commit a sin. But for the believer who does that, they are immediately in the presence of God. Suicide for the unbeliever, that 
removes any opportunity, further opportunity. It's tragic. It removes any opportunity for the gospel. Now, Judas committed suicide because his remorse drove him to it. He just seemed to not be able to go on with that level of regret, and that level of sadness. Judas did have a lot going for him. Just consider his company. For the past two years, he'd been hanging around the right people. I mean, there was not a better group to be part of in this day. He's part of the 12 disciples. Jesus is the leader of the group. Judas heard the sermons. Judas heard the gospel. Judas saw the miracles. He witnessed conversions. He received apostolic power. Consider his belief. What does he say? I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas knew rightly that Jesus was innocent. Consider his reaction. He says, I, I, felt, I felt remorse. He felt sorry. He felt regret. He wasn't rejoicing in the fact that Jesus was condemned. Consider his confession for a moment. He confesses his sin. His confession is personal. He says, I have sinned. His confession then is also accountable. He takes ownership for it. He's not putting it off on someone else or blaming the other guy. He says, I've done this. His confession is specific. He says, I betrayed. That goes further than just, God, forgive me for all my sins. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But though he confessed his sin, he confessed to the wrong person. And though he had remorse, it didn't lead to repentance. And though he knew facts about Jesus, it in no way changed his life. And though he hung around Christ, he never believed. In the account of Judas, for you and I, it reminds us that we can be a whisper away from heaven and miss it. We can pray a sinner's prayer. We can join a church. We can get baptized. We can give over decades of giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to a church and to missionaries and to good causes. You and I can sing the songs and take communion. We can have a truck full of good church memories. But if we do not genuinely repent of our sin, we will be separated from God when we die. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn from our sin. It means to change our minds about our view of God and our view of ourselves. It means to begin with God, saying, Lord, I am a sinner, and I confess that I need you and I need Jesus Christ. And it also means changing our ways, putting off those old sinful ways and putting on new godly ways. We won't do that perfectly. Perfection is heaven. From now until the day we die, we we will struggle with this. But based on that repentance, on that confession of sin and that belief upon Jesus, we know we can go to heaven when we die because God is faithful. That's what it looks like to repent and to believe upon Jesus. And that's something that, that Judas missed out on. If you this morning have been blessed by God, If you have some sense of your sin, that is a good thing. 
And there is a way, if you're feeling the weight of sin upon your heart this morning, there's a way for that to turn out magnificently. And as we wind down, I want to look at one other passage with you. I want to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Paul wrote a few different letters to this church at Corinth. Years after Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven, churches were popping up all over the place. The gospel had gone forth, and one began in a town called Corinth. And Corinth had her share of problems. You could read 1 Corinthians to get a flavor for that. At times, in Paul writing to them, he could be very direct. He could be very candid. But at all times, when Paul would write, he would always write in love. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow, Corinthians, by my letter, previous letter, I do not regret it. That's the same word from our text this morning. I have no remorse over it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. Now, here in this first verse in our passage, Paul and the church, they both experience some kind of an emotional reaction. We see Paul acknowledge that. There's remorse for the church because of Paul's direct words, and there's remorse for Paul because he made them sorrowful. He didn't feel great about that. These are the kinds of feelings that Judas felt. Judas felt remorse. Paul will continue in verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. You see what's happening here? There is a sorrow, there is a bad feelings that lead to repentance. Rather than burrowing deeper into the subterranean tunnels of our sin, it brought them up into the light. Their feeling bad led them to the Lord. In fact, Paul wrote here that we can experience a sorrow or a heavy-heartedness, even a guilt or a shame that can lead to the will of God. He writes in verse 10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Feeling bad about sin is good. The world and psychology and counselors are going to tell you to oppress that and press it down. Don't. Feel bad about sin. If the Bible says it's wrong, we should feel bad about it. We shouldn't feel good about it. We shouldn't keep following it and wanting to jump into it. It's meant to drive us to repentance. When we turn to Jesus, Paul's saying, it lifts that burden. It leads to salvation. Just feeling bad, living without repentance, that's corrosive. That leads to a spiritual death, says Paul. Now zoom out for a moment. You can see Peter and you can see Judas in this verse. For Judas, a worldly sorrow, it led to a dead end. 
We might call it just a cul-de-sac of grief and angst. He lived with a self-pity, a lonely internal focus. He never came back and brought it back to God. For Peter, a godly sorrow led to repentance. He enjoyed a freedom to confess and to unburden himself of that sin in that courtyard. It's a sorrow that we feel that, that can liberate us from any regret and any guilt and any shame. Verse 11, for behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In summary, if you sense your sin this morning, praise God. There are people that we must be desperate for that they would feel the weight of their sin. Not so that they're sorrow and sad and and, and don't know what to do or where to turn, but so that they come to a realization that they need Christ. Every gospel begins with Jesus Christ. Amen. And it begins with our sin and confessing it to him. So wherever you are this morning, maybe for the first time, you realize that, man, I, I have this weight, and I don't know what to do with it. Turn to Jesus Christ. Lift that weight. Let it go. He will take it from you. And if you're a believer and you've been struggling with sin, come back to Jesus. Confess your sin to him and, and, and enjoy a renewed relationship. Don't carry that sorrow any longer. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for showing that to us in Jesus. Thank you for the experience we have of relationship with him. Oh, Father, I pray for all of us today that we would unburden ourselves if there be any sin standing between us and a full, free relationship with our Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your restoration. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.